Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink and this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the ninth edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This is a very special edition as we're coming to you from the Booksellers Association Conference in Birmingham. We are surrounded by independent booksellers at the moment. We'll be talking to BA President Nick Bottomley about the importance of bookshops. And we have three author interviews this month. I will be talking to best-selling author Elizabeth Buchan and to bright new talent Louise Hare, who has a wonderful novel out next March. And also to Stuart Heritage, who always makes me laugh whether it is in person or in print. We'll also be joined by writer and journalist Anita Sethi to discuss the big books of September. And for Book Doctors this month, Fleur Sinclair from Seven Oaks Bookshop and Will Smith from Sam Reed's in Grasmere will be exploring what we might well hope to see under our Christmas trees. And then we'll play out with an audiobook extract of The Testaments, Margaret Atwood's highly anticipated sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. First, let me introduce you to my co-host. With me, as he is every month, is the bookseller's chief exec, Nigel Roby. Nigel, you come to the BA conference every year. Happy to be back? Oh, completely. Uh, it's a lovely occasion because basically <laughs> there are about 300 indie bookshop people here. They're the loveliest people you could possibly imagine. They've just had Philip Pullman chatting to them. They've just had Giles Brandreth nattering on, which was fantastic, hilariously funny. So, yeah, it's a lovely, lovely occasion. It is wonderful. Philip Pullman opened the conference and he came up with this rather lovely little thing. Do you know what's going to happen at the end? I feel safe. I feel that you do. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I do despair slightly when I hear of children in school being told that they had to make a plan first before they write their story. I was telling them to do it the other way around, write the story first and then write your plan. Because not only will your plan be the same as the story and you'll get more marks, but also it's more fun. It's much more fun. And until you've written the thing, you don't know what it should be like anyway. When it's there in front of you on your screen or in a great pile of paper, you can look at it and think, well, that bit comes too early and um, we need another bit there to explain such and such. And we could combine those two pieces. That's when you make a plan. So I don't make a plan first, but I know I'm going somewhere. And this book always had a kind of Central Asian destination in mind. Nick Bottomley is the owner of Mr B's in Bath, a glorious bookshop, and the president of the Booksellers Association. Nick, tell us what being the president of the Booksellers Association involves. Well, what does it involve? Well, it involves sitting on a lot of uh, in a lot of meetings, uh, <laughs> but for the good of hopefully all booksellers. So we, it involves kind of also being a little bit of a tub thumper for the industry as a whole, I think, and for sort of singing the praise of, of what people in the industry are doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, it does involve meetings that uh, we get together in various forms and we talk about issues that uh, the trade face and we uh, help lobby government where needed and we try to make some advances for the good of you know for the good of the whole trade whether it's about the environment whether it's about trading conditions whether it's just uh, sharing best practice between booksellers so yeah and what do bookshops need from the government if you are lobbying well, so, what is it so you're for after the, well for the government i mean obviously aside from a more stable government <laughs> which is not, not not really something that what would we all like yeah right so let's let's leave the sort of macro level thing uh, out 
I think if we had the ear of the government and if they were not concentrating on other things, we would most want to level a playing field as possible, uh, particularly with online competitors, particularly with one online competitor. Um, and that hasn't historically always been the case, so we, we lobby on that front. Uh, and then I think at the moment, really, the big focus is around the high street and, and the sort of environment around the high street. So that is business rates, uh, a system that is uh, more effective than the current one. Uh, th there was a concession that has helped a lot of smaller and medium-sized BA members and other stores, but there needs to be something more fundamental because mm -hmm. uh, there are still a lot of people facing business rates that are completely out of whack with where they should be. And you obviously believe in the importance of bookshops to society. Um, yeah, absolutely. Why? Well, I think they're important because in strange times, which we live in now, but even outside of strange times, people need to access books. And uh, we see that bookshops, at the moment more than ever, are not just retail spaces, although we shouldn't shy away from selling books and mm -hmm. recommending books to people, but they are places where people can come together to experience events with one another, experience book groups, have some feel of community. That's one thing. Another thing is that they can be, um, at the moment, relative leaders for reshaping the high street as a whole. The high street is in a, in a rocky place, and as I say, rates is one thing, rent levels is another. And um, we're in a rare situation where bookshop numbers are actually up slightly, and more anecdotally, what I see is these incredibly creative and energetic new people coming mm -hmm. into the trade. So there are a lot of very, very vibrant bookstores, and they are important for, mm -hmm. uh, as places for people to go and experience the high street. And we have some sort of almost a leadership role, I think, alongside certain other retail sectors that are bucking the trend. But it's fundamentally, I think, more than ever, we want a nation that has access to books and access to reading, and we want young people to be reading. And booksellers are out there you know they're trying to make a sale but more than that they're trying to make people understand how you can learn about the world or escape the world mm. from a book and what do you think are the ingredients of a perfect bookshop were there to be such a place maybe uh, mr b's is that no, place no, it definitely isn't there's no such thing as a per in fact i think it would be almost wrong wouldn't it you want it to be slightly imperfect you want there to be uh, a little bit of shambolicness around Actually, I, when I was a manager of a bookshop, I used to quite often say a bookshop is a work in progress. You yeah, should right. not be so obsessed with it being perfect yeah. that you ignore the customer or get no. cross with the customer. That's just... You can find <laughs> ruined your display by buying Exactly, something. exactly. So display is one thing. And then it's, you know, e even worse than that, you can easily get your, beat yourself up because, you know, you're back office your extra stock or your you know books that you're waiting to send back or whatever are not quite in the right order that they should be and then maybe there's a customer who hasn't been given the attention they need on the shop mm -hmm. floor so for me the biggest ingredient is customer service and it, the absolute top level of customer service that's always been what we built our shop on and it's where I believe uh, bookshops stand out and often uh, outperform the rest of the high street I believe in the extreme level of customer service basically creating friendships and long-term relationships with your customers so that you are one of the places they want to be when they're not at home. Mm -hmm. So that's the fundamental thing. Another element I think is more amorphous because it's being creative. We have often talked about the need to be innovative and creative in the way you sell books and the environment you create, whether that's just the way it looks or the way it feels. 
that's how we've done it. But each shop can have its own thing. You know, mm-hmm. there could be a shop in a much smaller population town than Bath, where what is really important is that the shop just feels like it is doing the fundamentals correctly and like it is a place where everyone is welcome. It doesn't necessarily need to do things innovatively, but it will have an identity. Whatever the um, location, whatever the high street it's on, will define what that idiosyncratic element is for that particular shop so it's a different ingredient for each shop and the difficult thing as a bookseller is to work out what shtick your shop needs (laughs) and we know that one of the reasons why the conference exists is to show all the booksellers the books they'll be selling over the next few months tell us about the importance of christmas to the bookshop owner i mean christmas is enormous Uh, it still is enormous you know when we first set up our shop in bath it was christmas really was the one sort of big peak in the first couple of years the the one that you all drove towards now as people have got to know us because we're in a touristy town there are sort of other peaks as well but um, Christmas is for most booksellers who are not in a seaside resort is the fundamental moment you know the publishers gear all of their major publishing releases or the vast majority to early September and then again early October and those are the books that they are going to be poised to reprint if if necessary uh, throughout the season so it's huge and it's really important that you see a wide range of different books I think and I think the publishers increasingly have have got on board with that you know it can be tricky sometimes especially for the independent sector if Christmas is funneled around a handful of books that everybody is trying to sell because that can lead to discounting uh, in some quarters which is not as easy to compete with if you are struggling with rents rates and everything else but when you've got a wide range of different types of titles across all genres then that's really when when the industry as a whole makes hay And and I think the last few years anything to go by that's the way sort of publishing has gone now and what are you looking forward to selling big numbers of in the autumn the way it always works at mr bees is it tends to be a lot of the ones that we sell most of because we do our own little catalogue of things that we're excited about which i must admit we don't do till a little nearer the time uh the most catalogues go, go out but uh it tends to be stuff that we are likely to hand sell a lot that we are very excited about personally so uh, that said, you know there are also some big breakthrough titles, big big ones that all sort of everyone will be aware of. So on the on the bigger titles, I think maybe the pick for us might be the Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern, first book since the Night Circus, which is just a book that you know doesn't matter whether you're a chain bookseller, or an online bookseller, an independent bookseller. That is a, a a title that everyone has been able to work with. To give an example of something much less sort of on the, on the headlines is Soul of the Border by Matteo Righetto, which has just come out into paperback. And it's one of those that I don't really think it got anywhere near the attention that it should have done in hardback. And the paperback's just come out. And, you know, I do think that booksellers have this huge role to play in increasing the longevity of books. Often a lot of the publishing program is, is based around sort of a small portion of love for a book and uh, and what we know on the high street is that actually if you're showing something that's new to a customer it doesn't matter whether it's one month old five months old six months old ten years old you can keep on recommending it as long as people keep telling you it's a good recommendation so and i think we're excited to get our teeth into that one 
One other one I probably can't miss out just because uh, it comes from the micro publishing house that we set up at Mr B's to try and reissue books that have gone out of print that we're absolutely in love with. We are publishing under our Fox, Finch and Tepper imprint a book called The Women of Brewster Place by Gloria Naylor, which was first published in America in the late 1970s and is an incredible uh, portrait of seven black women living in a tenement building and huge social deprivation but an incredible kind of it's got an incredible strand of humor to it as well that sort of you know up against the wall humor but also some pretty tough moments and it, it, back in the day it was a tv miniseries with oprah winfrey it's uh, it's had a lot of people who have been big fans of it over the years but not published in the uk and uh, yeah we're absolutely thrilled to be bringing that out well that sounds great and we will cross our fingers that it flies off your shelves yeah me too <laughs> thank you very much for joining us enjoy the rest of the conference thank you will do Anita Sethi is a writer and journalist, and actually we're stable mates in that we both have an essay in Kit Duval's Common People Anthology. I'm delighted she's joining us today to talk about September books. Anita, thank you for being here. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, where shall we start with big books? Might we start with Margaret Atwood and the Testaments, do you think? That would be absolutely wonderful. We actually, I have it in my hands here, and it was so exciting to actually hold it. And I had a very emotional reaction to actually receiving it. It was interesting as a critic how emotion plays into something when you're actually reviewing it as well. But I do think this book does provoke a very visceral reaction. I mean, it brought me to tears, um, tears of both horror but also tears of hope. And I do think that she has this amazing skill of getting to extremely brutal subject matters, unflinchingly so. And she shows horrors that have happened um, and she says in the acknowledgements to this book that everything that happened in The Handmaid's Tale and in this one has actually happened somewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's a key point. But she also has this capacity, um, particularly so in this book, um, to show hope as well, like hope in the dark. Um, and I know that's something that you picked up on as well, that sense of optimism. And I think that's kind of heartening to to have that sense as well because we're living in extremely dark times as... Um, and Handmaid's Tale and the Testaments are so resonant in that respect. It's very much about freedom as well, and to what, um, at what point do you make the choice for freedom? And making that choice um, to fight for freedom then creates change within this community, and it makes Gilead crumble. And it's so fascinating to actually see this world crumbling, this dictatorship crumbling as well. And I also thought it was fascinating to see... Um, things from the perspective of Alfred's daughters and the whole theme of bearing witness. The novel is made up of transcripts of witnessed, um, witness testimonies and that whole theme of the importance of bearing witness to the most brutal of events. Also, bearability and to what extent, how can language bear an extremely painful story? Mm-hmm. And then she brings in all the problematics of bearing witness, such as the tricksiness of memory, the fact that um, there were no calendars in Gilead, so how are they, you know, they going to say what date something happened? When because they it's know? framed in the future, isn't it? Yeah. It's framed that the testimonies are all being discussed at a conference. Yes. Um, and we're at a conference now, which is very meta. We're at a conference now, <laughs> yes. You're so right about it having a visceral reaction, because I was lucky enough to have a copy delivered to me, and 
like, I nearly kissed the cover. <laughs> I think he, he said, said, I think I might have he said, like, my what's in like that package? Because <laughs> I kind of like, I like jumped out of the house at him. <laughs> and I said, it's, it's, you know, kind of like panting and staring at him. And then I opened it and I was looking at the beautiful end papers. Yes. And yeah. there's a lime green ribbon marker. So slightly shaking, <laughs> almost crying. And that, I mean, I am very keen on books, but even so, that's not something that happens on a daily basis. Exactly. I had, my courier had the same reaction because I got a phone call from Penguin Random House the day before it was supposed to be delivered. So this is strange. And then I was on the Eurostore back from the Netherlands, so I couldn't get it that day. So the 9am the next day, I got it delivered and the courier walked down the corridor of my block of flats. And I I don't think anyone has ever been more delighted to see him. So, some that very could be a, beloved couriers. Be fiction in itself. It, what well, it? the whole, the, the, what the, whole the couriers' experience was of delivering yeah, the Margaret yeah. Atwood to well, all quite, these enthusiastic and, critics. Quite, and the way it was leaked in itself, um, it's like a scene from a novel itself. But I do think as well shows just how powerful a writer she is, um, and how I mean, she she has that famous quote: "A word after a word after a word mm-hmm. is power," and the power that this book has had both. On the reading experience, I found it an extremely powerful read, but also in the wider story around it. I read in the bookseller, actually, that hackers were had targeted her agents, Curtis Brown, mm. trying to get the manuscript. And, I mean, all of that is testament to what a powerful writer she's become. Yeah. Because her writing itself is so powerful. The story that she tells, the stories are so powerful... Did and you feel, because my fear, I suppose, if I had a fear, and the thing mm. is, whenever I anticipate a book, it goes hand in hand with a terrible fear. Yes. Because you know? I, actually, I yes. always want books to be good as well. I'm not the sort of person that, you know, there are some critics that rub their hands for a failure. That's not me. I want every book I pick up to fulfil its promise. And my fear was that it might be a bit gloomy or mm. that it might, whereas I felt it was full of all the things I utterly love about her. It was playful, mm. it was creative, it yes. was tricksy. The book of hers it most reminds me of, actually, in a funny way, isn't The Handmaid's Tale, it's The Blind Assassin, because it's so much about... I love those books where we the reader is reading something and they don't quite know what they're reading or why they're reading it, because it takes a long time for you to be piecing together the clues of who this of who these witnesses are mm. and that it's that it is hopeful yeah. that she's managed to get so much hope out of her story well the thing that strikes me um, about her work is actually how she balances that gloominess with light but shows how they're essentially connected so it reminded me of negotiating with the dead when it was published as that it's now called a writer on writing and she has this wonderful quote in that um, writing has to do with darkness the desire or the compulsion to enter it and hopefully to bring something out into the light Mm. and I think that she does that brilliantly she goes to the darkest places the gloomiest places Mm. imaginable but only by going to the dark places does she find the light and that's what I love about her writing is that she doesn't hide from those dark places she doesn't hide from the Mm -hmm. darkness and it's only by going right the way through it that she finds light Mm -hmm. from it and she takes us on that journey as well and it's full of jokes not not lols yes. exactly but lots yeah. of good g- it's a very accessible book I yes. feel I mean I don't you don't have to be a brain box I don't think to read it no. um but also it is full of joy for writers or people that are obsessed with books and how they work and there's lots about even even the reliability of the witness statements yes. themselves yeah. um I mean I can't see anybody that's going to be disappointed mm. by this Would that's you a really it's a really good point both of those points um about the wit I mean she's such a witty writer mm-hmm. 
and that's sometimes overlooked in um, reviews. She's she's so funny, and she's she's actually I interviewed her. Um, I went bird watching with her once <laughs> in the UK's oldest nature reserve, and she was so much fun to spend time with, and so funny, and so witty, and so um, acerbically so so sharp. And often, um, again, she gets some of the humour in her writing in this book. Um, comes from is it's a dark humor isn't mm-hmm. it it's a very dark humor and and I wonder about humor and it makes me think about the role that humor plays in her work as like a survival technique I mean how do these characters survive these absolutely horrific experiences mm-hmm. often it's by using humor as a tool a survival tool as well mm-hmm. again it's that question of bearability mm-hmm. I mean both both laying things bare but also how do we bear things and often it's by humor mm-hmm. and then the question as well about accessibility yeah I mean it's it, it's a very readable book, isn't it? But also has that layers. It's a very layered book as well. Oh, it's, I, it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, would, I immediately wanted to read it again. Yes. And I did actually revise. I read The Handmaid's Tale. It's sort of in preparation. Yes. Uh, but when I finished that, I thought, I not only want to read that again, I want to read The Handmaid's Tale again. And then I yeah. want to read that again. And I already feel a little bit confused about what I know from the one book and what I know mm, from this book. Yeah, like, do I know yeah. that because of... But yeah, that's the delight, isn't it? It's another one of my favourite things is books with sequels, I suppose. Exactly, and um, it's so interesting, the whole issue of sequels. And, um, and also she credits as well the reader response. That's another thing I love, actually. It, yeah, I mean, I I'm slightly well. allergic when writers slag off their readers, but mm. she, she says it was all the questions she was asked mm-hmm. about how did Gilead fall, and that yes, has inspired yeah. this book over the, the, you know, the many years. Yeah, so. absolutely, and it's... Um, in terms of readership, um, I thought that one of the most powerful aspects of the novel was um, was about readership. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one really resonant line about Aunt Lydia addresses the reader and says, who are you, yeah. reader, and when are you? Yeah. Will this be read in 50 years from now? Will it ever be read? Because every testament um, assumes a reader, doesn't it? Yeah. And, but she, I love how she brings in both the role of writing and also the role of reading. Yeah. What, she asks, what is writing? What is the power of writing? But also, what's the power of reading? Yes, and she makes the reader very important. So as yes, you're reading yeah. the book, you feel seduced and flattered by her. Yeah. And when she says, dear reader, and she says mm. at one point, if I do destroy these pages, you don't exist. Yeah. <gasps> you know, so... Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> anyway, I feel we could talk about it for the rest of the yes. day, but shall we tear mm-hmm. ourselves away into yeah. another book yeah. I know that you're keen to discuss? Tell us about Attica Lock. Well, that ties in. It's a, it's a beautiful segue. Thank you, Cathy, because... <laughs> Um, we were just talking about sequels and her new book Heaven My Home is a sequel to her book Bluebird Bluebird and it's extremely atmospheric um, evocation of her home of Texas and it's also part of a series of Trump era novels this one is set in the window between when Trump was elected and when he was inaugurated and it was inspired by an awful incident of racism at her daughter's school when a white boy called a black boy at her school an extremely offensive racial slur. And it made her really think about the whole theme of forgiveness. She has a daughter that, who's 12 at the time, and um, her daughter was able to forgive her classmate, but she wasn't able to forgive. So the novel really asks really important questions which I don't feel are discussed enough and which are really resonant in our current age mm. about forgiveness. How can we forgive someone who has been a racist towards us mm. or been cruel to us in any kind of way? 
how can we forgive them? What does it take to forgive? And at what point should we forgive? I mean, I was just thinking about the funny tinge comment that MP made, Angela Smith made. She's just been becoming a Liberal Democrat MP. And I'm like, well, should I forgive her and give her another chance? But this kind of novel, which is it's political like that, it makes you think about things that are happening in our own world at the moment as well. Mm-hmm. And... Um, see them through um, a more thoughtful prism. Now another book that we want to discuss joins Margaret Atwood's The Testaments on the Booker shortlist. That's right, yes. It's called Girl, Woman, Other by the inspiring Bernadine Evaristo and it is told by um, a group of um, women and explores concepts of womanhood and it's written in a, a really experimental style and a style which she calls fusion fiction. And I think that's such a great term. Mm. And I think she herself coined that term herself. And I just really admire writers that are experimenting. And I think we're living in an age that we need to see that kind of experimentation. And it explores um, what does it mean to be a woman, um, identity. It's fascinating in terms of activism, the novel features. Um, a theatre activist and it explores the extent to which writing itself can be a form of activism as well. Shall I tell you a nice thing about Bernadine Evaristo? Yes. Which is that many years ago she wrote a quick read, so the literacy charity quick reads that I used to run and this was before me so I didn't commission this book but she wrote a quick read and it is brilliant it's called Hello Mum uh, so the, the thing with quick reads is that they are designed to be read by emergent adult readers. So they're 20,000 words long and full of story. And I always used to use it. When I started working for the charity, I was always trying to explain to authors that writing an accessible book didn't mean that the story content had to be mm. dumbed down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to use Hello Mum as mm. the example mm. of a really brilliant uh, quick read because it's very accessible, but the story packs so much emotional punch. It's written yeah. by a boy to his mother um, and it's just amazing and I think in terms of like her own activism yeah. that was so long ago <laughs> it's just so nice to see her get some recognition yeah she says that herself I mean I interviewed her at the Observer and she made the point that she didn't get the recognition early on in her career but and it's interesting um, those writers who persist and don't often see the, um, the claim that they deserve until often sometimes decades later mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's wonderful to see her finally get the recognition that she deserves. But also your point as well about accessibility. It's so interesting because people often think that experimental writing is incredibly inaccessible. Mm-hmm. And they think um, James Joyce is going to be completely impenetrable and put off by the word experimental. And this novel, Girl, Woman, and Other Shows, that you can have a novel that's experimenting, but it's also accessible. I thought it was, a, it was an accessible read, which doesn't make it any less book prize worthy at all, mm-hmm. which is, is going to um, spark an extremely controversial <laughs> conversation <laughs> about book prize and accessibility. But, yeah. Let's quickly mention A Short History of Falling by Joe Hammond. Yes. This is a very short memoir mm. about a man who is living with, and will, as he says in the memoir, shortly be dying from motor neurone disease. And I just thought it was exceptional. There's a precision to his language mm, and his reflections mm. about life. And his point is that being near to death has made him see things intensely. Mm. And it, I thought it was so fascinating in terms of um, pain and prose and the mm. extent to which prose can portray extremely painful experiences, both physically painful and also emotionally painful. Mm. 
And he says in it, you know, a terminal diagnosis is the best tool a writer can get. And he says somewhere, he says, death is so interesting. I wish I'd known before how interesting it is. And I think it's that that gives the book... His curiosity Mm. remains undimmed. So even as his body starts to fail around him, his curiosity, his intellectual rigour shines so brightly mm. that it's a very it's transcendent book and a very, again, very intense literary experience. Mm. So tell us, given that the two of the books we've talked a lot about, The Testaments and Bernadine Evaristo's God Woman, they're both on the book of shortlist. I mean, is this going to tear your loyalties apart? Which one? They are both winners to me <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like saying it's like asking me to choose my favorite child um they're both winners to me i have to say as well that i'm extremely pleased to see elif shafak on the mm-hmm. book of shortlist i think she's a fantastic writer who again hasn't made enough shortlists that i feel that she deserves um and i think she's such a perceptive i'm completely evading your question aren't I? <laughs> yeah you are you are but because i would say think... my three favorites on the shortlist are the testaments by margaret atwood Bernadine Evaristo and Elif Shafak. I'd be absolutely delighted if either three of those won. Okay, well, I will let you get away with it. So in the short list been... of six, you're picking three. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry to the other ones on the list. You've been but... such a delightful guest that I will let you get thank away you with so that. Thank you so much, it's been um, an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And now we're delighted to be joined by Elizabeth Buchan. She was an editor at Random House before deciding to give writing a go herself. Her wonderful new book, The Museum of Broken Promises, is just out now. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted. It is a beautiful and intriguing title. Tell us about The Museum of Broken Promises. Well, the museum is in Paris and its curator is called Law. She's half English, half French. She's had experiences as a young woman in Prague just before the Velvet Revolution and in Berlin after the wall has fallen and people are still going around with the wall in their head. And such are those experiences that it's left her rather disconsolate and in need of some kind of reconciliation with something that's happened in her past, mainly to do with her love affair with a distant rock musician. And she's walking around Paris one day and she suddenly realises, looking at an old dilapidated house, that she can bring together those parts of her life, make it a museum where people come and bring something that symbolises the broken promise. It can be political, it can be to do with your family, it can be a lover's broken promise, it can be a philosophical or everyday broken promise. And they can come and deposit it there in some kind of ritual because she thinks that maybe ritual which that would symbolise that depositing and taking away again after a bit, would help to heal. And tell us about a couple of the exhibits in the museum. Well, (laughs) there's the railway ticket, which is particularly pertinent to Law, the central character. But uh, she's thinking about an offering from someone who's come in when the novel opens, of a young man who'd been searching for his birth mother. And he thought he'd found her. He had been adopted and done very well. He had enough money, having found her, to give her a a railway passage down to London in order to meet her. And he sends her the railway ticket, or one half of the railway ticket. He keeps the other to give her when she wants to go back, and she never turns up. Mm. And he comes to the museum and he says, I'm done. This is the symbol of a promise that she should have honoured, and Mm. she never did. Mm. And then there's a baby's booty, which... 
he's been left there by a woman whose baby has died and she feels that the people who looked after her broke their promise to take care of her. And then there's Freddy, the little boy's milk tooth. His father had promised that the tooth fairy would come, but he never did because he had left home. Mm. And tell us what inspired the novel. I like to think there's a real Museum of Broken Promises. <laughs> well, there is one called the Museum of Broken Relationships in oh. Croatia. But I wanted the promise because I felt that that extended much further in the landscape, both emotionally and geographically. And I was sent to Prague on a long weekend by our son, who thought that his parents needed a break. <laughs> but our darling son was very poor. So he sent us in January. And it was minus 20. So there was a lot of museums <laughs> that we went to, including the Museum of Communism, which was in those days just a couple of rooms in a shabby old building. And some person who I don't know who it was had collected all these artefacts out of sheer love. But what they had done was to mock up a room of a cell. And you walked into it. And on, in it was nothing except a table like the one that we're sitting at, two chairs like the ones we're sitting at facing each other, and in the middle, a black Bakelite phone. And as you walked in, it suddenly rang so harshly and so discordantly that I absolutely, I nearly fainted with the shock of it. And it was in a reminder that one was living oh, in a museum that was devoted to a time when repression and being watched was the norm. Mm -hmm. You were not free in the essential sense. And from there, the museum took its shape mm -hmm. because communism promised amazing things and like a lot of other political systems, including capitalism, has failed to deliver. And I wanted to write about that. And the bits where Law is in Prague, she finds it very difficult, doesn't she, to cope in this situation where she's being followed and observed and where what she does matters. And the, mm. the young people she meets there have grown up under very different circumstances, haven't they? Yes. They have a different language. They have a language of subversion, which she finds entirely alien. She is very naive. She goes out, for example, in a low-cut dress and is astonished when people really revile her for that because it brings the attention of the watchers on you if you go out looking like that. She um, tries to do things in the way that she's used to, and she's told, please don't do that. You are causing us trouble and embarrassment. She's amazed when she goes to a restaurant with the man she's falling in love with, and she raises her voice and he says, don't. Mm -hmm. There is someone there in the corner who's listening. And also, look at the waiter, an elderly man, and he said, please be kind to him, because... In the old days, he was a very respected head of a secondary school. He went to the funeral of a known dissident. The next day, he was told his job wasn't there anymore and he spent his life washing dishes. So it is a whole new arena through which she stumbles and a whole new language which she has to learn throughout the book. Mm -hmm. It offers the promise, doesn't it, the museum? The promise, I think, of reconciling with the past. Um, and I think it offers... Hope, am I right to say yes, it's a I hopeful book? I think so, because it's perhaps not the obvious one, but I think I was trying to make the point about if you are prepared to ritualise some of the things that have broken you or given you pain or distress in the past and you're willing to acknowledge this and make an open declaration of it, it, it is some form of catharsis. Mm -hmm. And I think the people who come to the museum do find, in the end, the act of doing that and talking about it and seeing it 
offers that kind of resolution. And it certainly does to Law because it gives her a reason to live her life well and elegantly Mm -hmm. without that bitterness and despair of spirit. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about your beautiful novel. Thank you, Cathy. That's really great. Delighted. Stuart Heritage is a writer and columnist for The Guardian. We first met when I interviewed him for his book, Don't Be a Dick, Pete, um, where we had a great time. Stuart, thank you for joining us. Tell us about bedtime stories for worried liberals. It's great. It's it's already out of date, obviously. (laughs) I've learned this year never to write topical stories about politics in 2019. It's just, oh my God, the whole thing's been a nightmare. The amount of stories I've had to junk just because something's happened. Oh, but the book is um, (laughs) uh, short stories about uh, millennials and politics and things. Apparently soothing. My publisher, my editor, kept telling me to make them more soothing. I do like the way it says, tuckered out by Brexit and Trump, had a long day fighting fascists on Twitter, or are you losing sleep over whether or not you'll ever find a truly sustainable source of avocado toast? (laughs) Snuggle up, snowflakes, I'm going to tell you a story. It's great, isn't it? I'm having my cake and eating it. I'm I'm sympathising and mocking the the Liberals at the same time. Um, What gave you the... What was the motivation behind doing the book? Well, they asked me, uh, Profile asked me to do it, and it seemed like... They just told me the title, and immediately the whole book kind of wrote itself. But again, yeah, I'm used to writing for the internet, where you can write a story about something that's happened that day, mm-hmm. and then people read it that day. And I've just been revising and changing the whole lot. The last story I wrote was about Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister, and there's a good chance that when the book comes out, he might not be. So, <laughs> Would yeah. that upset you? <laughs> no, do you know, I, the, in the greater scheme of things, <laughs> I'd be... I'd be happier if no one bought my book than if, you know, the country just descended into an enormous skip fire. And it's dedicated to your dad. To my dad, who doesn't know yet. That's going to be exciting for him, Mm -hmm. uh, because he voted leave. Gosh. Uh, Part of me thinks, you see, I'm making a big statement about, you know, we can cross ideological boundaries and, you know, we're still people at the heart of it. And part of it just, it's going to piss him off when he reads it. (laughs) I should tell him. Should I tell him before? What do you think? Before he reads it, should I tell him before? Um, well, I mean, maybe he'll be just like fondly proud because he's your dad that you dedicated a book to him. And then he wouldn't think of the reasons behind it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, okay. Do you think that's possible? I think I could probably. <laughs> I can get away. I'll wait till he's sort of basking in the adoration the glow that I've given him. Yeah. And then yeah. I, I can run away. And by the time he's it's figured out, I'll be in, you know, Costa Rica. Luckily, in my immediate family, well, whilst Brexit is awful because my husband's Dutch, so we're doing that whole, like, oh, yeah, God, he's been course, rebranded yeah. as an EU national, so that's nice. Um, my son came home from school and said, if you die, well, Daddy and I have to go back and live in Holland. Oh, my um, gosh. But the good thing is that everybody in my immediate family does think the same way I do. We are mm. remain a clan. Obviously not in your family. I hear it causes great divisions, has it? Yeah, yeah. The morning after the referendum, I had to share a car with my dad. And we had a screaming match, basically, and mm-hmm. my mum was sitting next to us going, don't fight, it's just politics. And we were just yeah. yelling at each other. And now you have to try and put some of it aside. I treat him like I treat sort of mouthy taxi drivers. He starts <laughs> saying, you know, this is what we asked for. Why don't we just... We would tell he told him the last thing he told me... <laughs> He won't mind me saying this on a podcast. He said that England should be given a referendum of whether or not we detach ourselves from Scotland. Right. So <laughs> he has a lot of time on his hands. He, th- yeah. he, has, he thinks these ideas through. So, yeah, he starts talking and I just go, yeah, sure, okay. And then it stops and then we can carry on, you know, 
being father and son, mm-hmm. and not mortal enemies. Yes. And has it has writing the book um, helped you not be depressed about Brexit? No, worse. <laughs> Much worse. <laughs> Much worse. I think you can kind of, on a day-to-day basis, up until very recently, you can sort of detach from it because there's such dense sort of legalese. There was a period of time after it got extended in April or March... I kind of just thought, just, I'm just, I'm backing off. Just tell me, mm. just you tell me when you've sorted things out. Uh, but then, as soon as I've been getting into that, writing the book, it's just been, <laughs> I had to willingly dip my face into the toilet. Well, hopefully, given that life is pain, <laughs> but the only thing sometimes we can do is laugh. Hopefully, oh, this is your own. I wish you'd done the cover quote. <laughs> hopefully, this is your own modest good deed in this. I hope so. World. It's a nice book. It's much less violent than I wanted it to be. <laughs> there was a story about Tommy Robinson, which I thought was hilarious, but mm. apparently there are legal issues to, uh, <laughs> to the things I can and can't say. But what remains, I think, is a nice satirical, soothing, I've been asked to say soothing, soothing collection of stories. Okay, well, let's hope it will be uh, helping us all. Irrespective of what our opinions are, I do try to hold to the fact that we should respect other people's opinions, even though I don't really believe that. (laughs) But irrespective of who you are, dear listener, maybe you will find this a soothing read, or if not, a funny one. Yeah, and if you don't agree with it, buy it for your children, because they (laughs) hate you. They hate what you've done to the country. Thanks very much, Stuart Heritage, for joining us. Pleasure. And now we're going to talk to our book doctors. We do this every month, usually over the phone, so it's a delight to all be together. What we're asking for them this month is ideas for Christmas presents, because a book really is the best gift, in my opinion, and the best way to get the most interesting books is to ask a bookseller. So let's find out what they've got in store. Thanks, Cathy. Uh, <gasps> back by popular demand today, we've got Fleur Sinclair from Seven Oaks Bookshop and Will Smith from Sam Reed Books in Grassmere. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hello. <laughs> well, we usually do this on the phones. Happy to be at the conference? Very happy to be at the conference. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the ecstasy is unbounded. Oh, <laughs> it's lovely. I, I love I love the conference. All the lovely smiley faces of fellow booksellers that you see every time. It's just joyous. Well, it must be nice as well because you know, you're completely different ends of the country. And so you know, you're meeting up with people you know either by repute or from other occasions. But... Uh, you don't often spend much time with them, I wouldn't imagine. No, I mean, it's great to catch up with people again from what I think for many people is quite an isolated profession. Absolutely. In lots of ways. Yeah. So. Oh, it's lovely. I mean, you, we see each other sometimes at like uh, publisher presentations or something like that, but otherwise, this is like the counting in, I don't know, whatever it is, Cold Comfort Farm. It's the counting of booksellers, yeah. isn't it? So. <laughs> I was going to say it was a parliament of booksellers, okay. but that's like, yeah, we don't do parliaments okay. these days, do we? So. Um, so we're doing a slightly different thing. Normally the book doctors, you know, we've had people write in with what they're looking for. But now I thought we'd do something different and say, you know, talk about books for Christmas and particularly books in indie bookshops at Christmas. So what are you most looking forward to selling this year? So, you know, don't all scramble at once. We're going to go Will first. Well, there are so many. There are a couple of very interesting books on the horizon for us. One of them is a poetry book. You'd probably not be surprised that we would choose a poetry book. Um, It's Ella Risbridge's Set Me on Fire, which is an anthology of contemporary and classic poetry, but with a different kind of an edge to it. You might know Ella from her memoir earlier in the year, Midnight Chicken, which was both a cookbook and a kind of a 
discussion of depression and grief interwoven. And this is her second book, but it's uh, an introduction of poetry to a crowd who might not always be interested in yeah. poetry. Uh, and it also looks beautiful. They've presented it delightfully and unintimidatingly. Noted throughout. There's lots of guides for the poems throughout. So that's one of our big titles on the horizon. I may be misreading the the runes or the tea leaves, but I'm I'm sensing that there is more poetry being purchased, and it's it's a, a small number, so you'd never pick it up in the stats. But with all the Wordsworth connections, of course, you're going to sell more poetry in general. But do you think more poetry is being purchased? I think so, or a broader range, certainly. Um, we see a lot of small books being picked up, and anthologies like this should start to bring some of that work together, yeah. I think. It's, yeah. I think it's quite hard for an anthology to get all the permissions and to, to manage to bring together what's actually being sold just for all those publishing technicalities. So this should bring some of that work to a more mainstream audience. Yeah, Yeah. If, if I can add to that as well, I think the thing about a poetry anthology, as a gift particularly, um, books are so often... I don't know, you're sort of almost asking for a lot of somebody's time and you people always want to report, did you enjoy it or what have you? And that can be hours, days, weeks of somebody's time, whereas a poetry anthology, people can dip in and out of it, they can like, not like, and when they're packaged so beautifully, as you say, I think you know we see more beautiful ones for, for children and as well as adults that are doing really well and make lovely gifts at Christmas. Mm. So, Fleur, do you want to kind of dip in with one of your picks now? Uh, yes, a really obvious one that I think will do very well in our shop is one called The House Party by Adrian Tinniswood and it's a short history of leisure, pleasure and the country house weekend oh. and yeah, I, I haven't seen a final copy but just to buy my little printout that I've been sent by the publisher, I think it's going to be very nice, it's a tenner um, 144 pages it just looks perfect to go in everybody's stocking and when you uh, if you do get a stocking as a grown up and you wake up and you're thinking about <laughs> but you wake up, you get your stocking hopefully in before you have to face the turkey and the potato peeling I think it would be nice to imagine that maybe someone has lit the fire and left you some bread and butter or whatever they do in country houses when you go for the weekend in country house novels I think that will do really really well so, so. I'll give you a childhood trauma of mine go on but, so <laughs> we always used to kind of share Christmases or alternate Christmases with my mum's mum and so my two cousins so my sister and I we got stockings my cousins they got pillows uh oh pillows <laughs> oh that's just wrong isn't it it is wrong oh. so you have poetry first Will uh, I'd, I'd follow up with something slightly more alternative I think. Um, so your first choice wasn't alternative? No, 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 no it's very mainstream right. these days. So a kind of a, a guidebook with a, a slant to it um, that's coming out from, uh, written by Gareth Rees with Influx Press, is called Car Park Life, <laughs> which is a guide to UK car parks. Um, he has taken the tack that we tend to overlook car parks, some of us literally <laughs> in our lives, and that we assume that there's nothing interesting going on there. But he's kind of taken a tour of the length and breadth of Britain to uncover the interesting natural and social lives of car parks. 
this reminds me of was it Dan Kieran? You'll remember this, Cathy. It's reminding me this of crap shit towns. Town, crap towns. Yeah. That was crap it. Yeah. Towns. This, I mean, I think this has Christmas bestseller written all over I it. I think yeah. they're sold. Absolutely. I yeah. thought. Yeah. <laughs> I, need to, I mean, I instantly want to look at it and like yeah. work out whether all the car parks I have a personal connection with. Yeah. Like, has it got that funny multi-story in Leeds? And what about <laughs> that one that's got the really steep exit in Falmouth? You know, you want to look up your own car parks, don't you? And then feel a bit cross. I'm sorry, they... <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners. We seem to have entered into some weird world here of Cathy's car parks. But never mind. All right. But everyone that's for 2020. That. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's why these books work. And you know the crap towns book, apparently, because yeah. I heard that author say, people used to get really cross when their town wasn't, wasn't in it. it. <laughs> we had Spoons Carpets. Did you take yes. that one? That one did really well. Mm-hmm. We just, did you know Weatherspoons had different carpet designs for different Weatherspoons all around the country? Uh, need to get that book as well. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say something bad then, I'm not going to, no. They're just pitched for those passionate individuals who might already be interested in the topic, and they bring everyone else along with them, and that's the job. That reminds me of a series that was done, which actually goes in completely the other direction, because it's it's not the crap town something. Alec Clifton Taylor, and he did books, there was a TV series, probably, I don't know, the 70s or something like that, and... There were about three books in the series, and it was sort of beautiful English towns, or British towns, not sure which. I think Ludlow was one of them, and he was that sort of, that lovely kind of guide who took you through, and you ended up learning so much more stuff, but gorgeous, gorgeous books. I think they're worth, I think someone should, whoever publishes them should reprint those. Update them. Update them. Or I would, (laughs) say if they're not going to bother. Um, So we've moved... uh, Poetry, car parks, country houses. I don't know where the hell you're going dogs. to go now. Oh, I'm dogs, going to dogs, dogs now. Dogs, right, okay. um, uh. And uh, this is another one quite specific to the shop, um, and it's called Faces, Profiles of Dogs, and it's by Vita Sackville West. So I think it might be a sort of compilation um, that's been put together um, in time for Christmas, because in Seven Oaks. Our big country house, back to country houses again, is Noel, which yeah, was her childhood, childhood home. So locally, we will do well with anything that is Vita. So well, this is normally gardens. Ah, uh, normally gardens, uh. but local interest, Bloomsbury set. Dogs is like tick 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 yeah. for um, my customers, and oh, I don't know. It just I think she describes um, different characteristics um, of dogs she's had and other dogs, and like I think she describes the silky, gentle-eyed Afghan like somebody's elderly aunt Lavinia who nourishes a secret passion for the vicar. I think that's the sort of <laughs> <laughs> that's the sort of thing that I think we can all find quite light-hearted, particularly dog lovers of Seven Oaks. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> Seven Oaks really hasn't moved on very much, has it? (laughs) No. um, She founded our Poetry Society, actually. We have two poetry societies in Seven Oaks founded by Vita. So, yeah, it hasn't moved on, and it has. There's a resurgence of interest in... Uh, Vita because of the Vita in Virginia film, the film as well yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. asking for Vita's Act for West in general so this should be a really nice if they happen to be dog lovers too I think you've got to sail there Will so. <laughs> it's like the film code high in edition something like that yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you in, in this because obviously at Christmas time you know, one of the big big sectors that sells so well in the high street in you know, Smiths and so on are the cookbooks. Are cookbooks sort of territory that indies really can't sell in? Or do you sell just as much as everybody else? Um, I think cookbooks are very difficult for us because they get very heavily discounted 
in the other high street stores and also so we're not just competing with them and the internet like with most things but we're also competing with Waitrose has a very healthy yeah. cookbook section and again they are all quite heavily discounted so we always want to try and cover the main ones but we're looking more for the very very beautiful that's going to do more than just give you inspiration for dinner we we want them to have travel we want them to have like other things that make a lovely gift something like that I'd say I don't know about you Will if you I think we've increasingly tried to focus on having as you say the ones which have a kind of a a gift interest but also they know their area really well they're a cookbook that kind of commands the, the part of the cookbook range that they're looking to address I think from our point of view, cookbook publishers don't often approach independent bookshops with the idea that they will be interested, whereas actually the past few years, one of the books we've kept in is Martha Collison, a previous contestant on the Bake Off, uh, her book Crave, um, which was about flavour profiles that HarperCollins brought out. And people have come in and known that we will have that, actually. There's been a strange connection whereby we've started to have a kind of recent classic cookbook section yeah um, because I think again people see cookbooks as quite ephemeral they may come out one year and then because they're expensive hardbacks shops simply don't keep them so if you can keep ones from the last two or three years and then you're you're somewhere that people regard as a place to yeah. go to look at um, what's new and what's essential yeah essential exactly because I think you you know you think you want to bread book and a baking book and a, so we try to cover all bases in in those kind of ways that maybe the supermarkets are a little bit yeah. more for the brand new and then move yeah. on so yeah. do you think i could um elbow in a elbow recommendation away. for a christmas cookbook at this point <laughs> because i think it might do all those things that you just said you wanted your books to do it's the dishoom cookbook mm. subtitled from bombay with love and it is just the most beautiful and heartwarming thing and Dishoom are a little chain of restaurants um, I think possibly only in London I'm not sure I've only ever seen them in London I think they might have one I want to say in Birmingham but maybe that's just because we're here but I think they've got one in somewhere else but the rest of London something like that is there one in Edinburgh? No, there's certainly not one anywhere near where I live in Cornwall, I can tell you. But one of my favourite things when I go to London, if I've ever got a bit of time, is I take myself out to Dishoom. During the day, because they're always very busy at night, it's difficult to get in, I just take myself out and sit for an hour and a half in one of them um, with a bowl of greens and some black dal. And this bookshop. And one of the things I really love about the restaurants is they are places of storytelling. There's all this fascinating stuff on the walls, on the menus, about these cafes in Bombay that inspired the chain. And that storytelling is reflected in the cookbook. Mm. So far, I have only read it. I have not tried to make the Black Dal. But, I mean, who knows? Uh, The thing is, even if I never make a recipe, I will be so pleased and honoured to have it on my shelf because it's just such a glorious thing to read and look at. But, yeah, if I master the Black Dal, you know, I might invite people I think we had one dining with the Durrells and I think that's like Mrs Durrell said she used to go to bed with like recipes from Raj Patana or something and read those like other people read novels isn't it so um, yeah we all need to take Dishoom to bed as well like Mrs Durrell (laughs) So I've completely lost as to where we are now but um, Will you got another sneaky suggestion here for customers for Christmas? It's sort of perhaps crosses some of the boundaries we've already been discussing. Uh, I was rather taken by another tour of the British Isles, this time alongside a cheesemonger. Um, it's Ned Palmer's Cheesemonger's History of the British Isles, um, published by Profile at the end of October. And so it's both a guide... Was well, it going round different sort of, you know, 
we're in carefully today type thing. Yes. Oh, yeah, nice. very much so. So talking about local cheeses and flavours, he's a guy who has uh, run his own cheesemongers in London for a time and he has this real kind of expert opinion, yeah. if you like, a taster's guide to these regional products. That feels really right because, I mean, the whole kind of... I'm not sure whether artisan is still a word that's being used much, but that whole vibe is definitely you know, mm. of the moment. Absolutely. I think I'll buy that. You know. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's one sale done. Sorted. Uh. Oh, my last one was for me, actually. I thought I'd include what I wanted for Christmas. Is because you can buy it cheap? <laughs> not so I can buy it cheap, but just as an example of, there are the books that like publishers bring out for Christmas, like the one I mentioned, The House Party, or, you know, that have sort of Christmas written all over them. But I think what we try to have as well is just to make sure that our range is as broad as possible because we never know who is going to want to buy a gift for who and what possible interests they have and although Seven Oaks is not very near the sea um, I have a weird <laughs> obsession with surfing and big wave surfing and there's a book coming out and it's published by Prestel and it's called Surf Like a Girl and generally I don't really like books that have titles that have like a girl as in like not just like surf like a person but um, this one has such a glorious cover there's a woman in an inside page who's doing a headstand on her surfboard and everything about it just makes me think oh like I need to be at the swimming pool doing front crawl every minute of the day so that when I go surfing next summer I can maybe not shame myself quite as much as I did this summer and um, I just want to have this book so that was an example of just like wide range of publishing and stocking that we have to do to make sure that everyone gets what they want (laughs) for Christmas So, Will, you can give us one last one if you've got the last one there. Well, inspired by that, the book that I would want for Christmas uh, is um, Republication, I suppose you could call it. It's a book by Joni Mitchell. Oh! Uh, it's called Morning Glory on the Vine. And she published it for her friends in 1971. It was made in a very limited run. So it's her own illustrations and drawings and her own lyrics from the first two albums of songs. And this is the first time it's been published for a wider audience. That is sensational. I really, really love Joni Mitchell. I was never too sure about Emma Thompson as an actress, but The Time We Love Actually, which is a film everyone hates. In our family, we love it. But (laughs) but the the whole Joni Mitchell in that film is just fantastic. Right, uh, that's two I'm buying from you. And I'll I'll obviously get the surfing book. Obviously, obviously. You just have to sort of envisage my face on this woman who's shredding waves instead of riding riding foam like a stick man, which is kind of my skills at the moment. So... I think those just shows actually. I think the whole range that is you know, that you can get through a, a really good indie. So I hope there's plenty there for our listeners to to get their teeth into. Always buy locally, listeners. That's what we always say on the podcast. So thank you both. I hope uh, I know it's yeah. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? Talking about Christmas now, but you know I hope the build up and the Christmas season works really really well for you, and you have a fantastic sales season. <laughs> thank thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> Now, Louise Hare's debut novel, This Lovely City, is a murder mystery and a love story set in 1950s London. Laurie is a musician who leaves the Caribbean on board the Windrush and arrives in London full of hope. Welcome, Louise. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about the inspiration for the novel. Um, It was kind of an accident. A few years ago, I did one of those tours you can do in London where you go into the old 
um, sort of closed off underground stations. And they do one at Clapham South where you can go into the deep level shelter, which I knew had been used in World War II. That's why it was kind of open as an air raid shelter. And what I hadn't realised until I got down there was that they actually put Wimrush passengers down there, which I thought was sort of terrifying. You know, you come two weeks on a ship and have all these expectations and get shoved underground. So I knew there was a story there, but it took me a while to sort of figure out what it might be. And then um, it ended up coming out as a short story, or I thought it was a short story, um, that I wrote on my main creative writing. And the main feedback was, this isn't a short story, it's a chapter or something, we need to know what happens next. So that was kind of the way it all started from. And basically one of the chapters, one of the flashback chapters in the novel is a sort of edited version of that short story. Mm-hmm. And Laurie is full of hope when he arrives, isn't he? Yeah, I love it's quickly. <laughs> so it doesn't last yeah. long. Tell us what. Tell us about his arrival in London. So when he first arrives, obviously you know he's given this bunk bed underground, but then he goes out and he gets pinched in the face the very first night that he's there in the pub. Um, so he gets it's a case of mistaken identity. His friend Aston, who's a bit of a, a ladies' man, um, sort of approaches the wrong girl, but it's Laurie that ends up getting pinched in the face for it. Um, so he's sort of bounced back from that, sort of worked his way into a decent job as a postie, um, working as a musician, falls in love, and then things start to go wrong. Tell us a little bit about Evie before we let things go wrong for him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Evie is um, probably the character closest to me in that she's mixed race, um, as I am. And I kind of wanted to use my own experiences as somebody who grew up in an area that was very white and always looked different. Um, but being able to place her in 1950 in London, she would have had a lot of the same experiences that I had growing up. So I sort of used that as the starting place for her character. Um, so she lives with her mum, she's a single mum, she's quite bitter about everything that's gone wrong in her life. And she gets really excited, obviously, when these women which passengers turn up on Clapham Common, she goes down there, ends up meeting Laurie, and yeah, it sort of goes, the relationship kicks on from there. Yeah, and it's a rather beautiful friendship that's becoming a romance, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Poor Laurie, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time again, isn't he? Yes. Tell us, just tell us a little bit about what happens next. Well, I've had to talk about what happens in chap- the end of chapter one, and hopefully it's not a spoiler, chapter one. Um, so he, as well as being a postman and a musician, he's trying to get money together, he's thinking about the future and getting his own place and things like that. So one of the things he does is he delivers sort of black market goods, because obviously rationing's still on in 1950, and he's sort of on his way back from one of those trips where he gets called over as he's going across Clapham Common, past one of the ponds, and it turns out there's a body in the pond. So obviously, he's not even the first on the scene, the second on the scene, but you know, as a black man in that area, and also looking a bit shifty because he's feeling guilty about what he's actually done, as opposed to what he's not done. Yeah, he falls into suspicion for quite a serious crime. Poor Laurie. Um, It's a timely and powerful novel. Um, Are you looking forward to publication? It's coming out next March. Are you looking forward to publication? Do you feel nervous? A bit of both, sort of nervous excitement. It's been a year since I got the publishing deal, Mm -hmm. so um, yeah, it's just been a waiting game, really, and now I guess things are starting to happen and people are starting to read it, um, sort of early readers, so uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting in the next six months, I think. Well, I felt truly honoured to be an early reader of this book. I loved it. I loved what you did with London. I loved the way that this kind of the rationing era and Windrush, and I heart was so full of love for Laurie and I wanted things to go well for him. 
Which, of course, they often don't, but still, <laughs> I'm sti- I would still put it on my favourite shelf of hopeful books. How <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's fair enough? I think so, yeah. I mean, I wanted... Obviously, things need to happen to the characters. I mean, that was probably one of the hardest things going through the process of writing the book, is you get so attached to the characters that... You just feel really guilty when you do something really bad to them. <laughs> just but don't you... let him go to the park on that day, Louise. <laughs> I know, and then there'll be no books. <laughs> yeah, so it's like kind of the compromise you have to make as a writer, I think, is, you know, at least give them something, give them some hope, some light at the end of the tunnel, mm-hmm. which I think there is. You know, not everything goes right and not everything turns out the way they would have expected, but I think it ends on a hopeful note. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us and good luck with everything. Thank you very much. And that is the end of this special edition of the Bookseller Podcast. It has been a joy to record in Birmingham. We've had a great time. Thank you to Nick Bottomley, Fleur Sinclair, Will Smith, Anita Sethi, Louise Hare, Elizabeth Buchan and Stuart Heritage. Our next podcast will be in October. If you'd like to talk to us about anything, then you can tweet at The Bookseller, come to our Facebook page or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. We've talked a lot about the Testaments by Margaret Atwood on this episode and we're delighted that we can play out with an extract. This clip is performed by Anne Dowd, who reprises her role as Aunt Lydia that she took in the TV series. And that will end the ninth edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Only dead people are allowed to have statues, but I have been given one while still alive. Already, I am petrified. This statue was a small token of appreciation for my many contributions, said the citation, which was read out by Aunt Fadala. She'd been assigned the task by our superiors and was far from appreciative. I thanked her with as much modesty as I could summon, then pulled the rope that released the cloth drape shrouding me. It billowed to the ground, and there I stood. We don't do cheering here at Ardua Hall, but there was some discreet clapping. I inclined my head in a nod. My statue is larger than life, as statues tend to be, and shows me as younger, slimmer, and in better shape than I've been for some time. I am standing straight, Shoulders back, my lips curved into a firm but benevolent smile. My eyes are fixed on some cosmic point of reference, understood to represent my idealism, my unflinching commitment to duty, my determination to move forward despite all obstacles. Not that anything in the sky would be visible to my statue, placed as it is in a morose cluster of trees and shrubs beside the footpath running in front of Ardua Hall. We aunts must not be too presumptuous, even in stone.